and this passage that, um, that we have in front of us is certainly one of the most sublime and profound uh, moving parts of the whole scripture of any language spoken anywhere by anyone. Um, the Beatitudes are uh, really, as it were, uh, an explanation of what the world really is like. And, and the battle of faith and the life of faith is all about, about whether this is really what really is or if the world's story is what really is. And um, in the journey that I've been on in the last number of years, uh, in baby step ways for the first time, I feel like I'm starting to understand the magnitude um, behind the beauty and the, and the reality of our Lord's perspective, uh, his true perspective on who we are and what the world's about. So let me pray first and then read. And then we're going to do a survey. Obviously, you can't explore the sermon or the Beatitudes in one sermon, but we're going to take a walk through and try to learn from it. Heavenly Father, I pray your mercy, and I ask you, please, Jesus, to teach us what it means to live in the world as it truly is with you, as you truly are. We pray in your precious name. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Well, what I remember about uh, 10th grade biology, and that was really the last serious science I took. My entire collegiate career was spent trying to avoid math and science, and uh, I was successful at it. But uh, what my biology teacher said, I'm pretty sure, was that we see everything upside down when it lands on our retinas. So... I'm looking at you, and I see you right side up, but the image is upside down. And not only that, I, guess what? I have two retinas, right? And I just see one of you. So the mind, as I understand it, takes these images, turns them upside down, makes them into one, and so that we can see each other and live in the world. I believe that uh, the Beatitudes are a spiritual attempt by Christ to do just exactly that for us. The world is actually upside down and divided. And it's really not the way it is at all. And Jesus has come in the Beatitude. He's trying to give us, uh, not a list, I think, but a pathway. He's given us a, a, the way of the blessed, a journey. Beginning with the most fundamental, the most foundational of all of the Beatitudes, the, the portal, the entry point to understand our own spiritual poverty. Without getting a grasp on that, the rest of the Beatitudes make no sense. Jesus is going to lead his people on this mountain. He's going to lead them in a pathway that's going to help them live in the world, not the way it appears to be, not the way the world says it is, not the way our flesh wants it to be, but the way God said it actually is, the way the Son of God assures us by his own life it truly to be. So let's take a look 
at the Beatitudes. Let's find this pathway. Let's enter in and um, begin together with him. But before we do that, I want us to see the magnitude of the setting. If you look at those early verses, we see that Jesus um, is approached by a crowd. He goes up to a mountain and he, he sits down and his disciples come to him. Well, I'm not the first person to recognize that, that something significant is happening here that reflects another important part of the history of, of God's people. Uh, God's prophet, in, in this case actually God himself, is going to sit on a mountain and tell his people how to live. Does that sound familiar to any of you who are familiar with the story of the Old Testament? There was a man named Moses. There was a mountain named Mount Sinai. There, there was a message called the Ten Commandments. Jesus is clearly reenacting that, but there's some substantial differences. Now, of course, it's not simply a prophet that's coming, although Jesus, in a fashion, was a prophet, but, but God himself is on the mountain again. When God came to the first mountain, he was so terrifying and so awe-inspiring that the people of God said, don't talk to us anymore, send us prophets. Well, God had sent them prophet after prophet after prophet, and then finally he sent his son, and his son comes back. The God of heaven and earth comes back onto another mountain to tell the world the way that life can truly be had, what it's really and truly like. But there's something even um, more substantial, or I should say perhaps not more, but also significant. That mountain, no one could approach. That mountain, everyone was supposed to stay away from. Moses went up, Aaron went up a little bit, and the 70 elders came up and had a feast, and then they all scurried back. But here Jesus has the whole crowd, the whole multitude of the profane and the broken and the lame and the foolish and the religious and the irreligious, and he invites them all up. And so God is reenacting, he's recommunicating, he's telling us what the world is like again, and that's what comes out. In fact, what we're going to find out um, at the end of the message is that it had to be Jesus it had to be the Son of God. In fact, I will tell you that if you understand the Beatitudes, if anyone else had given us the Beatitudes other than Jesus, who loved us and gave his life up for us, who truly lived them, they would just be mean. These, these things are harsh unless they've been proven, unless they really tell us what the world is like. If I told you to be poor in spirit, well, that'd be kind of tough. But if Jesus tells you to be poor in spirit, he who was rich and for our sake became poor, well, then you can have confidence. So let's take a look at that first one. Let's take a look at the portal, the beginning of all blessedness. What does it mean to be poor? Well, in simple terms, it means to have no ability to preserve or protect yourself or the people that you love or provide for them. Preserve, protect, provide. When you're poor, you cannot do those foundational things. Proverbs 10:15 says, A rich man's wealth is his strong city. The poverty of the poor is their ruin. Well, that's what poverty is. Poverty is the inability to preserve, protect, or provide for yourself. J.K. Rowling, who wrote some books about magic and doesn't believe in magic, by the way, She's made a little bit of money off of those books and the movies that came afterwards, and I saw an interview with her, and she said, you know, it's interesting, people feel like money is magic, that it can do anything for you. She said, well, I don't believe in magic, and actually, speaking as someone that has a lot of money, she said, money doesn't do what you need it to do for you. Money can't change your world because it can't change you. So poverty is the inability to provide, protect, or preserve yourself. Spiritual poverty then is all those things in the heart. 
When Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's saying, blessed are those who are empty and have no means to provide, protect, or preserve themselves. And Jesus, of course, is not saying that, um, hey, if you're one of those unlucky souls that's poor in spirit, well, I got some good news for you. If you're not one of those people, then you can go on to the next point. You know, he also says at one place, I came for the sick, not for the healthy. He didn't mean that there's some healthy people. Jesus is telling you that if you understand yourself rightly, you realize that you interiorly, the things that matter the most in your heart, you cannot protect, you cannot provide, you cannot preserve yourself, you have no capacity. And he's not speaking of, um, not to diminish the kind of poverty that's around us, but, you know, America does poverty different than the third world does poverty. And it's still hard to be poor in any age in any culture, it's kind of a relative thing, but Jesus, the language that he's using here about our poverty of spirit is, is not first world poverty of spirit. He's saying that, that we must understand, we must recognize that we all have a kind of third world poverty of spirit, an inability to um, provide, protect, and preserve ourselves, a, a, a lack of strength and even kind of a death. Unless you get your head around the fact that you really have nothing to your name spiritually, that you're empty, that you can sort of present as to one who's got some spiritual wealth, that you can, you can have a kind of uh, a faux kindness about you or authenticity about you, but really at its core you've got nothing. You're like, you're like the man that was once rich and still lives in the big house, but no one knows it's about to go into receivership. Unless you understand that, the rest of the Beatitudes will make um, no sense to you. They, they won't um, be part of and parcel of the world that you're in. Listen to what Isaiah 57:15 says. For thus says the one who is high and lofty who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I will, do, I will dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Jesus, when he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, notice that, that the the blessing of that state is the, the entryway into the way God sees the world, the, what God is doing on earth. And he's telling you that if you want to possess the kingdom of heaven, you've got to give up any sense that you can accomplish, provide, protect, preserve for yourself spiritually, that you really are absolutely destitute in affection for God, in life from Him, that you can't fabricate it, that you have no resources, that there's no account from which you can draw on, that if you needed life now, you would, and you're spiritually, your family would all starve to death. You're vulnerable and open and empty to the environment. You can't do anything to preserve or protect yourself. And the degree to which we insist that our religiosity or our niceness or our kindness or our tolerance or any of these measures by which we um, try to give ourselves a sense of spiritual wealth and integrity in life, to the degree to which we hold on to those things, to those degree we receive to receive, uh, refuse to receive the benediction of this, of this uh, beatitude. To those degrees, we refuse to enter into the fullness of the kingdom of God because God wants in his kingdom the broken and the contrite and the lowly. He wants those who recognize that they must come to this place, they must come into a relationship with him without pretense, without their own confidence, without the show of empty wealth, 
And they must come begging. They must come needing. They must come in the fullest and most complete expression of absolute spiritual destitution, which, of course, is a horrible place to be. Raise your hand if you want to be poor. That happens everywhere I preach this sermon. No one wants to be poor. What do you do when you're poor? Well, the first thing you do when you're poor is you try to be not poor, right? That's like the very first thing. By the way, if you're ever, if you're ever materially poor, one of my recommendations is you to start immediately trying to be not poor. But spiritually, it's interesting. Spiritually, Jesus, as we understand the Beatitudes as a pathway, we've just stepped into this portal. It's like a chute, you know, um, like, a, like a water slide. You climb up there, you know, at... at um, Timberwolf Lodge, you know, and once you're in it, you've got to keep going. And, and Jesus says, if you really understand your poverty, you're in the chute, you've got to keep going. What are you supposed to do with your poverty? Well, well, besides trying not to be poor, the world says you need to deny your poverty. You need to fight against your poverty. You need, you need to pretend you're not poor. You don't want people to understand the, the measure of your need. But Jesus actually says you should mourn. And this passage in its context is, is not talking about mourning for the loss of a loved one, although Jesus understands our mourning for that. He's not saying that you should mourn for the the brokenness of the world, although that's fine. This is about um, what the first thing that poor in spirit do is they mourn, they accept, they lean into their spiritual poverty. You know, this is one of the most difficult disciplines in in the Christian life, is one to acknowledge um, your destitution of your soul, but then to let that reality sweep over the emotions of your heart, to, to live in, to not deny, to not run away from, to not fabricate um, uh, all manner of religious means to make us immediately seem like we're not poor, but to wait and to understand, to live in, to feel the magnitude of the fact that being spiritually poor, I don't have anything to give my children of true and ultimate gospel love, that I I can't love my wife the way that I'm supposed to. I can't live selflessly as a minister. You know, the magnitude of my poverty is so great that that I have nothing to give, no authenticity to, to offer other people outside of Christ. And I've spent my whole ministry trying to act like that wasn't true, as if I could say, I know I'm spiritually poor, but I'm gonna act. I'm not gonna feel the weight of that. I'm not going to let that rest on my spirit. I'm not going to weep and mourn for the fact that I am so deeply broken that God had to come and save me. I'm going to immediately use all my training and all my religiosity to act like that's not really true. But the fundamental reality is once you enter into the shoot, once you realize and embrace your own spiritual destitution, the next thing that you need to do is let the weight of that rest on you and feel the emotional measure of the fact that you have nothing to give the people around you. You can't help yourself. Feel that. Weep for that. Cry for that. The more you embrace that, the more you will be comforted. It's the great paradox of the gospel. The more you reject that, the more restless and empty and frustrated your Christian life will be because you're trying to live in a way that's not true. You're trying to live in the world that's upside down and divided. It's a... it's. Um, a mystery and an upside-down paradox of the gospel. You know, you have to die to live following Christ. And here's the thing, you have to mourn if you want to be comforted. You have to feel the magnitude of your poverty if you ever want to be comforted in it. 
But see, if, if you um, don't mourn, you don't get comfort. It's bizarre, isn't it? I love the way God set this up for us. Like, uh, if you don't want to mourn, you'll mourn more and more and more. If you embrace the sorrow of who you really are and what you know to be true about your own heart, well, then you can start to be comforted. That's a peace that passes understanding, right? We, 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 we want to feel good. Jesus says, lean into your poverty. Embrace that. You know, instead of those things, though, instead of leaning into our sorrow, what do we do when we're incapable? What do we do when we can't protect, provide, or preserve ourselves? What do we do? Well, we get angry. Because anger makes us feel big and strong and rich, right? Because if I'm angry, then everyone around me will conform to my wishes. That doesn't work, by the way. I, I I read that in a book. I didn't learn that in real life or anything. Cynicism. If you don't want to be poor, you can lust. You can deceive. You can please people. You can enter into depression. Or you can, you can sit alone in your room at night and you can mourn for your own vapid, empty pretense of a life that it's really all show, that if people could see your heart, they would see nothing. They would see its emptiness. You know, interestingly, the more you lean in, the more you accept sorrow, the more you have a pathway to joy and comfort. The more you deny anger or lust or greed or deception or cynicism, and and the more you, you enter into your own sorrow, you become free of all those false wealths. You know, all that pretentious sort of credit card spirituality where you're going to live and take vacations and have stuff that you can't really you can't really afford but the people around you think you can afford it and you've convinced yourself so that's the first thing we do after accepting the magnitude of our poverty this is what ecclesiastes says in 7:2 it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. Solomon is saying, lean into the futility of this place. Lean into his poverty on the other side of that, acknowledging that reality. Then there's true. Then there's real joy. And Jesus continues the pathway. He says, acknowledge your poverty Mourn for it, feel it, don't minimize it, don't move past it, don't rush through it, sit in it, remind yourself of it every day. What will that do to you? Or what should that do to you? What's the next pathway? What can make you bitter, hard, cunning, rebellious? Can make you strive? That's what the world would have you do with with mourning. Listen, remember, as soon as you're poor, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to become not poor. As soon as you're sorry, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to become not sorry. You're supposed to not mourn. You're supposed to say, tears bad, mourning bad. And the response to that is striving, bitterness, um, drive, taking charge of your own life, right? When people are making you sad, when your world's making you sad, that's what you do, unless you're in the pathway of the Beatitudes. And then that sorrow should soften you. You become meek. For Jesus says, blessed are the meek. 
And interestingly, the meek get everything. That's a beautiful part of it. You know, the, the morning get comfort, right? And the meek get everything. But you've got to be meek before you enter into that. You've got to let go of everything. Meekness is hard to describe. Uh, it's hard to, to teach about because it's one of those things that you can kind of see it, but you don't know if you could write a sentence about it. You know, my best sense of meekness is it's a fusion of, of humility and strength. A fusion of humility and strength that exercises itself in internal and external submission to God. You know, the pathway of poverty that embraces the reality of that in mourning, um, the more you mourn, the more comfort you have, and the softer you will become. See, what the world's poverty does, what our own inability does to us, what our, what our aversion to feel the weight of um, our brokenness and really mourn for it does for us, is it makes us hard, rebellious people, conniving, manipulative um, the law of God and our relationships with others become instruments by which we can, we can um, a, deny, avoid, and overcome our poverty that we don't want to acknowledge. And we certainly, if we acknowledge it, we don't want to, we don't want to mourn for it. So we turn religion and we turn work and we turn money and we turn our physical relationship with our spouse and we turn all these things in, into instruments by which we get what we want, right? This is not meekness. Jesus says the meek will get all those things. You know, the, the, those, who, those who don't want to mourn, they don't get comfort. Those who don't want to be meek and want to strive and grab and take everything, they don't get anything. But the meek inherit the earth. The people who have a fusion of, of humility and strength that expresses itself in internal and external submission to God. As David said in Psalm 40, as for me, I'm poor and needy, but the Lord takes thought of me and my help and my deliverer. You, my help and my deliverer, do not delay. Do not come late to me. I had a boss um, once who was a believer and he knew that I was also a believer and he also thought that I didn't work hard enough. Time out. I don't think that was true, but it's not the point. It was 30 years ago, and I'm not bitter about it. But anyway, the, um, he came and he said, Mike, I want you to know um, about my priorities in life, God, family, and work. And I see that in you. And I said, yeah, Joe, thanks. He said, but you know, if you watched my life every day, you would think my priorities were exactly the opposite, <laughs> which is exactly what I thought when he said that. I mean, and that's what we do. That's what we do when we're not ready to, to lean in to the sorrow of our poverty, to, to become meek and to trust God to give us the world on his terms, at his time, and in his way to the people he chooses to give it to, and that is the meek. But foundationally, it's also what happens when, when we don't understand what to want. And Jesus, taking us through the pathway of um, the Beatitudes, starts with poverty, says, don't, don't, Evade the reality of poverty, but lean into it emotionally and feel the magnitude of it. Don't let it make you hard. And, and then he says, and now he says, don't let it make you want the wrong stuff. Because Jesus says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for those are the people that will be satisfied. You know, as I said before, when you're poor, you want to be not poor. When you're hungry, what do you want to be? 
You want to be not hungry. These are not, these are not trick questions. <laughs> you know, when you're hungry, you want to be fed. Jesus is saying, don't let the brokenness of the world and the emptiness of your life and your, and your actual poverty, don't let it confuse you about what you fundamentally need and what you really long and hunger for, what will actually be satisfying to you. As I tell my people over and over again down at Green Lake and, and in Linwood too at Ascension, I, you know, I remind us that we could eat the whole world and we would still be hungry, right? Because the world can never satisfy us. But this thing that, that Jesus talks about, this, this important, vital, central concept that Jesus introduces here, and it's really all throughout the scripture, this idea of righteousness, this can, if you want fundamentally more than you want food, more than you want affirmation, more than you want sexual intimacy, more than you want money and achievements and recognition, if you want this thing righteousness more than any of that, if you'll even forsake those things that you might have this one thing righteousness Jesus says then you'll be full then you'll be satisfied then then you will live as one who is um, able to be sustained you'll feel it in your heart what is that thing righteousness well it's kind of like it's kind of like moral rectitude it's that's a component of it But more foundationally, more completely, and fully in the scriptures, although that's part of it, you you have to have some of that. I mean, that's part of what makes a righteousness real and vital. Foundationally, it's relationship in the scriptures. And ultimately, it's relationship with God through Christ. Relationship requires righteousness. It's rectitude. And so this is why I tell folks it's... um, you know, morality is to righteousness what, what t-ball is to Major League Baseball. When you drive by a t-ball game, it kind of looks like baseball. You know, there's, there's bases, and there's a bat, and there's a ball, and people are wearing gloves. That's, morality kind of looks like righteousness. It's got some of the components to it. But, but t-ball's, not, t-ball's not Major League Baseball, and and, and morality is not the full relationship that Jesus wants to give us that he has with his Father. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we, God gave Jesus our sin that he could give us Jesus' relationship with him. That's what you should want. You know, poverty which leads to mourning, which softens your heart, should change the way and the what and the how of what you want. It should make your world, it make your world different. It make you understand that foundationally you don't need. It's all right to want. It's, you recognize your body's physical needs. It's all right to want those things and God made the heavens and the earth for us to enjoy them. But you know, if you've entered into this chute, you know, as you go on this pathway, that what you really need, this world cannot offer. That you need a relationship with God. You need free and full access to your Father in heaven. That this is where there's life. That's why you continue to mourn that you might be comforted and you soften your heart, that you might have that fusion of strength and humility that expresses itself in internal and external submission to God because you really want that. And of course, that is yours in Christ. When I went to seminary, I was, you know, that guy that told me his priorities. I left that job and went to seminary. And I had a, a bunch of money saved up. 
And uh, I think, I don't know when it was, maybe the first semester of my second year of seminary, I was living with my parents, and I picked my nephew up. The guy's like 30 now, but he was a little kid then. And, you know, I was going to take, I was going to take Judd out for, you know, some uncle time. And, you know, the cool thing about uncle time is that uncles buy you all the stuff that your parents would never buy you, you know, especially related to food. And so um, went up to the ATM machine I'm in my car, Judd's right next to me, you know, we're stoked. We're going to go get, I think it was ice cream or something. And I put my card in the ATM machine and I say $40. Of course, this tells you something about my financial planning. I put $40 in, ding, insufficient funds. My first thought is, glad the kid can't read yet because that'd be kind of embarrassing. $20, ding, insufficient funds. I had to like go in the bank. I think I had like $11, spent it on ice cream. I had a small, he got a medium, you know. And it was, it was actually um, a seminal moment because uh, I thought, I learned a couple things like, dude, you got to keep closer track of how much money you have. That's one thing I learned. But the other thing I learned was that, um, you know, falling short, not having what it takes, sucks. And, and it, it changes the way I'm going to, relate to people around me because it changes the way I see myself. So Jesus, having told us about the blessings of um, the Beatitudes as they relate to who we are in ourselves, he's now going to take a turn in these last few Beatitudes, which we'll skip through um, again quickly, and maybe a little bit more quickly. He's going to say, what do they do to the way, what does this pathway do to the way you treat others? What does poverty of spirit do to the way that you treat others. And the very first thing um, is that it says it turns the power of need into the power of mercy. You know, when you're truly, deeply needful, um, everybody you meet is a meal ticket, right? And you can't show mercy. You can't, be, you can't be patient. You can't be gentle. Because, you know, you've learned wrongly in the world that nobody will love you as urgently or as well as you will love yourself, so you better take care of yourself, Right? But Jesus says, after telling us all these things about the blessed pathway as it relates to our understanding of ourself and what we truly need, the very first thing he says is, blessed are the merciful. So blessed are those who understand that wanting relationship with God, that being soft and meek before him, that accepting the sorrow of their own poverty, they can be freed to show mercy to the other broken people around them because they're going to be okay. They see kindred spirits when they see people in need. They, they see someone else who's lost, someone else who's hungry, someone else who's broken, someone else who can't protect, provide, or preserve themselves. And so having understood deeply who they are, having accepted it before Jesus, it's, it's natural, it's necessary. It's almost, as it were, or could be, if we live this way well, instinctive to be kind and merciful to them as a kindred spirit, as another poor person. Mother Teresa tells this beautiful story of uh, being led at night to a woman who was starving with her children. Someone came to her door and said, you must come. This woman has no food for her children. And she took a bag of rice and she walked across the village and she came to this woman's door and the woman um, 
reaches out, and uh, as Mother Teresa tells the story, the hunger on her was shining on her children's faces. I don't know what that means, but it's striking. I guess the need was so acute that it just bore into their faces when they saw the hope of rice. And this woman takes this, this rice that Mother Teresa gives her, and the first thing she does is she divides it in half and then takes half of it, maybe in her apron or in a bowl, and leaves. And Mother Teresa doesn't understand what's happening. In a few moments, the woman comes back, and, she, and Mother Teresa says, what did you do? And she said, I know another family that is also hungry. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. That's what, that's what Jesus has been trained. The first Beatitudes, like the Ten Commandments themselves, um, are divided into two parts. The first Beatitudes are to change and shape the way you see who you are and what you really need so that you can be free to love others. The next Beatitude, also about relationship, says, Blessed are the um, pure in heart, for they shall see God. Well, this Beatitude can be seen in terms of our relationship to God and our relationship to other people. Because what are the two great commandments? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. But you can see how it's connected to this pathway so foundationally because if you're really on your own, if you cannot be poor, if you cannot mourn, if, if you absolutely cannot be gentle and humble or you'll be more and more exposed and more and more left to yourself and more and more vulnerable and that's the worst case scenario for you, you're not only not going to be merciful, but you will compromise and pollute yourself for every form of satisfaction that you can find. You'll give yourself over in illicit relationships. You will compromise and, and deceive in the workplace. Um, you will not love God with all your heart and you will not love your neighbor and you will become increasingly impure. Because you have to. Because you're in a jungle. It's like the Hunger Games. You've got no choice, right? Somebody's going to die. Well, we're all going to die, but somebody's going to die first, and it's not going to be me. Someone's going to lose first, and it's not going to be me. And so that is why, that is why you live on the kind of spiritual debt that we live in. That's why we cheat. That's why we, that's why we gossip. That's why we slander. Because we're alone and we don't understand. We don't understand that if we would lean into our poverty, that if we would feel the weight of it, that if we would let it soften us and change what we want, we would start to be free to be merciful and kind. And then we can be pure. Because, because we know that we're, we're not alone, that we're not the person that's going to love us the best that we've been loved the best and we're pure in heart. In this beautiful image, we get to see, see God. You know, what I love about this is the order. It's interesting. He tells us to want righteousness before he tells us to be pure in heart. And that's really the way the gospel works, isn't it? The gospel says, find a relationship with God and then be pure. The rest of the religions of the world say, be pure and then you can see God. Jesus says, find righteousness and then live as if your Father in Heaven is going to care for you, then you can say no to pornography. Then you can say no to slander. Then you can say no to anger. Then you can say no to illicit relationships. Then you can also be, also be merciful for the pure in heart. 
they see God. Listen to the next beatitude. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they should be called the sons of God. Well, in this sense, peacemaking is not simply talking about breaking up arguments, okay? Although that's part of what it means to be a peacemaker. But what he's saying, again, now that the Beatitudes have sunk in and changed the way we want and see ourselves and what we want, opening up ability to be tender and merciful to others, to um, say no to sin, that we might be pure before God because we're not left to our own devices. Um, Now we can start to be part of making the world the way it's supposed to be. And that's really what peacemaking is about. Again, it's not simply about breaking up a fight or being the first to apologize, but it's about bringing shalom back to the world. And, And here's the reality of it. Again, if you're on your own, if you don't acknowledge your poverty, if you need to find everything yourself, if you need to make your own way, if you need to fight and scrap and drive and cheat and work harder or work smarter, if that's your whole paradigm for the way the world really is, then you're going to be part of breaking up the world. You're going to be part of shattering shalom. It will necessarily be that case because you have to fight with the rest of them about what's yours. But if you're free from that, if you're free from that, then you can step back and start to repair. A man who came to Christ in our church, um, baptized him and his sister and his father came to faith. It's a really wonderful story of God's, God's power. He now works in a large consulting firm downtown, and, and he and his partner, um, although they just, they're, they're partners in the sense that they have one sector of this larger firm, they have blown the doors. They went from two to 75 employees in about a year and massive amounts of business. And, and I was speaking with him about what he's doing and he said something really remarkable. He said, you know, what we're doing is uh, we're creating a humane environment for people where we uh, invest in them and we tell the truth and we, um, we share credit and we're patient with them when they make mistakes. And, uh, you know, it's amazing. The place just catches on fire. People love it. And and they work harder, and it's more effective. And he said, it's interesting, the, the other people that are peers to us in this organization, they're, they're angry about it, and they're intimidated by it. Do you see what he's doing? He's, like, That's what a, he's a peacemaker. He's creating an environment that respects the image of God and humanity. Blessed are the peacemakers. They should be called sons of God. He's free to do that, because he's already admitted that he's poor and entered in to all those things. So, coming to a close here, we we have to understand something that I said earlier about Jesus and the Beatitudes. It had to be him. Because the the last Beatitude, which brings us back to the blessing of the first Beatitude, helps us understand the significance of what Jesus is saying to us. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You recognize that language from up at the top about the poor in spirit? He's, he's wrapped it around, and then he's going to elaborate it and say something that's truly, truly remarkable. He's going to make the whole thing about him, which is interesting. It's, it's not what a prophet is supposed to do. It's not what a great teacher is supposed to do, but listen to what he says. Um, Blessed are you when others revile and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely. What are the next words? 
on my account. What he's saying is that I haven't given you a list, I've given you a relationship. I haven't told you to follow my prescription, I've told you to follow my person. This is what it means to be with me and to be one of mine. These beatitudes, Jesus says, these beatitudes are about me. This is who I am among you. He is, as it were, proof of concept, which is why it's not mean. You know, I said earlier, if I gave you the Beatitudes, they'd just be mean. I would tell you to to climb a mountain you cannot climb, to to live in a harsh world that will not be tamed as as a lamb. But Jesus, he says they're about him. What do we know about Jesus? Well, we know Jesus more than anyone. In fact, only Jesus ever has lived this passage out. He was rich, right? And for our sake, he was rich, and for our sake, what? He became poor. Blessed are the poor in spirit. He was a man familiar with sorrows and acquainted with grief. This is what we read about him. Blessed are those who mourn. He said, he said, take up my yoke, it's easy and my burden is light for I am gentle and meek. Gentle, that's the word. Here comes your king riding to you, gentle, meek, and on a donkey. Jesus did not disobey God in the desert while he hungered and thirsted for righteousness' sake. He above all was merciful and the bruised reed he didn't break and the smoldering wick he didn't, he didn't put out. You can see him live through all these things. Was there ever anyone who was so pure in heart as Jesus? Who loved God with all of his heart and loved his neighbor as himself. And of course Jesus was the peacemaker who reconciled God and man. And of course Jesus was the one who in extreme measure to death was persecuted for us. Jesus is saying, when he tells us that the persecuted are blessed, he's saying you are blessed if you follow me out of the value system and the paradigm and the world as it says you are supposed to be. And what he says in doing that, or the rest of his ministry, is he goes about proving that it's safe, proving that this is the way the world really is. And the great vindication of it is in the resurrection. 